Welcome to the Soccer File. Hi, I'm Simon Evans in Miami and welcome to this episode of The Soccer File. First of all, before we get going on a big discussion on the US Second Division, USL, NASL and the final resolution of the conflicts in the American Lower Divisions, just want to say a quick thank you for all the feedback on our Chinese Super League special. Got a really lot of feedback from listeners and people telling me how much they enjoyed the show. And I had a look through the statistics for the soccer file. We've done seven episodes before this show. And so far, we've had listeners from 55 different countries tuning in to listen to our discussions about the Premier League, about the Bundesliga, about American soccer, about China, about Asian soccer. We've talked about a lot of different countries. And so obviously, that's helping our podcast reach a really wide audience around the globe. And that's something we welcome. But today, more of a domestic focus for our American listeners. We are talking about the American Second Division and everything that's gone on there. And I've got a fantastic panel on the show. Kartik Krishnaya is former communications director for the North American Soccer League, the NASL, which has survived and which will be getting underway in March, their 2017 season. Kartik writes for World Soccer Talk as well and covers these issues very closely. Neil Morris is based in North Carolina and covers football in that area and also has followed very closely what's been going on in the second division wars over the last few months. Jonathan Tannenwald with the Philadelphia Inquirer is a very astute observer about politics in American soccer and he'll be with us as well with his thoughts. And Dave Martinez is from Empire of Soccer, the blog for New York Cosmos primarily. He writes about the Cosmos and he's a fan of the Cosmos and uh, gave us some really good insight when we last discussed these issues. So sit back, there's a full hour of this to come. You don't have to be a soccer nerd to enjoy the soccer file, but it certainly helps. And this is really good stuff on the NASL, USL, and what the future is for America's second division. So when we last talked about the second division in American soccer here on the Soccer File, things were looking pretty gloomy. There was talk of the NASL going out of business altogether. The New York Cosmos looked dead, at least in terms of 2017. But we since found out in these last couple of days, the NASL survives as an eight-team league. The New York Cosmos are one of those eight teams under a new owner. USL has become a second division. So it's basically as you were, except for USL, uh, having all of its 30 teams promoted to the second division overnight, which has uh, got to be a world record in international soccer to have 30 teams promoted in one day. But anyway, let's get down to it with our guests. First of all, let's start off with New York Cosmos because there was a lot of interest in what happened to that club internationally. And as I was saying, we've had listeners on this show from 55 different countries. So we've got to bear in mind there are people who have a lot of interest in things outside of American soccer, but also inside what's happening in this second division. The appeal goes well beyond uh, New York City or the NASL or the USL. Dave, big relief for New York Cosmos fans, I would imagine. A lot of optimism now. Well, surely. Actually, the amount of optimism was surprising to me. Um, just to catch everybody up, uh, the New York Cosmos, with the Division Two sanctioning, have uh, triggered an ownership change, which brings in a media magnet in uh, Rocco Camiso uh, as the new ma- 
majority stakeholder, the new owner, really, of the New York Cosmos. And if you believe uh, certain sources, the number keeps on bouncing around, but I'm comfortable in saying that he's about 60 to 80 percent owner of the New York Cosmos now. And with that comes a, a new era of hope for this team. Now, who knows if things will be any different, but at the very least, they have that Division Two status and they have a different outlook on what the future could be. And no need to worry about whether to support NYFC or the Red Bulls or whether to, to sit and uh, be miserable about the state of American soccer. Yeah, I mean, it must be for those fan groups uh, a particular relief. And I saw one of the fan groups has put out a statement recently that you, that you reported on, yeah? That's right. I mean, there's a lot of optimism. The Five Points put out a, uh, a statement of support to the new ownership group looking forward to sitting down with them and talking about the new direction of the team. And really, this is a, a clean slate for the Cosmos. Uh, still, there are so many lingering after-effects of what happened uh, over the past month and a half. Uh, for instance, the back pay issue, whether it be the front office or the players uh, having their contracts rescinded, there's are, there are plenty of people still owed money to the, to the time of this very recording uh, that have not seen their payments come through yet. And uh, Rocco Camiso, one of the things that he's supposed to, again, many sources are telling me that he's going to be tackling one of the first things, is making sure that those people get paid, along with several vendors that were also left out in the cold as well. And the Cosmos also have to, uh, I think they have to do some heavy lifting with the fans, because not everybody is bought in. I mean, Seamus O'Brien is still part of the ownership group. There's still going to be some lingering negative effects and bad feelings towards what's happened over the past month and a half. And they have a little less than three months to get ready for an NASL season with the stadium, with the full staffing, with players, with fans and seats. Uh, it's, it's an uphill climb, but I think for the most part, Cosmos fans are happy that there's at least a pulse left in the club that they love. Right. So it's the same stadium, but it's going to have to be some new players, right? Because some players have already moved on, and, and I guess they've got to, got to get working in the transfer market pretty quick. But otherwise, it's going to be as you were in terms of where the club play and everything well, else, is it? Not, necess- not necessarily, because they're no longer going to be at Hofstra. So just before uh, the, the season collapsed, the front office was talking pretty heavily about ending their relationship at Hofstra University, uh, playing at a short stadium, though they have a wonderful record there. The attendance was horrific. Uh, public transportation is non-existent. Uh, the stadium, in short, became a bit of an albatross. Uh, now, for the past six months, they were negotiating with MCU Park, which is the home of the Brooklyn Cyclones, a minor league baseball stadium, uh, another minor league baseball stadium hosting, hosting soccer. Uh, those details were hammered out and ready to go. The Cosmos were ready to sign uh, paperwork for the coming season until everything uh, just went into disarray. Luckily for the Cosmos, again, through my sources, from what I'm understanding, MCU continued to hold those dates. So it's very likely that, 99% likely, that the Cosmos will be playing out of Brooklyn this year and no longer out of Long Island. Interesting. So that's going to be one one new aspect to things. Um, Well, it's good news, though. It's good news for football, I think, in this country that that the New York Cosmos are still around and still in business. Neil Neil Morris, you've been talking to, to the ownership at North Carolina FC as well, who seem to take quite a, a lead role in the attempt to salvage this season for, for the NASL. Are, are they happy with the way things have worked out in the end? Uh, speaking on behalf of Steve Malik, or uh, from his point of view, who I've spoken to more in the last probably 72 hours than I have in the, in the last 
five months. Uh, it, 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 he is elated. Uh, of course, he's had a lot of news in the last several days, not just uh, the survival of the NASL and, and maintaining a D2 league, but also the announcement today that he was bringing an NWSL club to the triangle, having acquired the Western New York Flash. Right. Uh, but he he is elated, and I think the best way to sort of couch where Malik stands within the, the current makeup of the NASL boardroom, and this, some of this is things that I know, and some of it is, is informed supposition, if you want to call it that. Okay. Malik, to me, is probably one of the spearheads now of a confederation of owners in the league. I can't say that it's unanimous because there's always going to be wild cards, particularly in a, in a league with the, the makeup and the model of the NESL. But there is a confederation of owners now who have wrested control away from the influences of the past. Right. That is what I believe. Now, how long that, that continues, who knows? Uh, this is a, we're a long way today than we were from 12 months ago. But a lot of the rhetoric that you're seeing coming out of the front office a lot of the approach that you're seeing now, uh, a lot of how they want to do business from now on is in a completely different uh, – it, it, it comports with not just a different approach, but frankly a purge. There's a lot of purging that's going on right now. You saw some of that today with the, the announcement of, of Bill Peterson leaving the NASL. Uh, when I interviewed Malik on Friday, and, and Jonathan was clued into this, uh, he brought up finally divesting traffic sports, lingering interest in the league. I didn't ask him about that. He brought that up on his own. So there is finally a confederation of owners inside the league who have a different approach. And, and I'll, just, I'll just give you these two juxtapositions to illustrate the differences. You know, tw- you know, 12 to 15 months ago, the leader of the league uh, was someone who, along with other owners, had hired an attorney to issue a letter-threatening legal action against U.S. soccer. Right. for a variety of reasons. Uh, today, Steve Malik, who made a statement on behalf of the league's D2 sanctioning on Friday, uh, was bringing an NWSL club to the triangle, having negotiated that with representatives from U.S. soccer for the last several months. So that, that in and of itself shows you sort of the path that they are wanting to take now. Now, that does not mean that this league has turned a corner by any extent. They have a lot of work to do, and we can talk about that. But there, there is a, there's a group of owners who realize what has gone wrong and are at least dedicated to, to rectifying that. Right. So Bill Peterson, the commissioner who, who's uh, left by mutual uh, consent or whatever the phraseology was today, but he's been fired basically from the NASL. Um, and uh, they've got an interim commissioner in place now, somebody from the administration. They're looking for somebody else. Um, could be quite a while while they find somebody else to head it up. But the rhetoric and what you're suggesting uh, there, Neil, really, the rhetoric has been much more about being a cooperative part of the soccer system in the United States rather than being the rebel who's going to overthrow the system and bring about promotion and relegation and bring down MLS and challenge MLS and so on. That, that's, that's really the background to it. And Kartik, I know this is something that, that you've, you've written about quite a bit as well, but that tone, that approach, I mean, 
the Aaron Davidson, which is when we talk about the past, we're talking about the NASL being found by Aaron Davidson, who, of course, is facing uh, charges related to the FIFA scandal. Traffic Sports is now out of NASL. Um, is that all over now, do you think, Kotick? Is NASL just going to be a different way of organizing things from USL, uh, but working in a complementary fashion with everybody else? Do you think it's that straightforward now? I don't think it's quite that straightforward. I, rhetorically, Neil is correct. I think there is a concert of owners, uh, some of the owners in the league. That, remember, there are only eight active teams left. And uh, Fort Lauderdale uh, and Oklahoma City, well, Fort Lauderdale for sure remains an active team without uh, a, a, an active ownership group without fielding a team for 2017 potentially. But there is a limited number of owners. I think there is a concert of about half of those owners that agree with this new kind of um, – rhetorical tone which is conciliatory which is to complement the other leagues just organize their business differently but i think uh actions speak louder than words and you still have some influential owners in that boardroom who do, who still have a desire to challenge mls you've got a owner in that boardroom steve malik who, who neil of course spoke to uh, over the weekend who wants to join mls and you've got uh other owners who i think are confused uh, or newer and maybe confused about how the D2 business works. So I think it's going to be very difficult for them to implement change. I think they're probably too far down the road of the way they were going to just turn around and be a D2 league that complements MLS and USL with a different business model. They have to have a long-term vision and a long-term strategy that is appealing, that is different. Now, the idea of challenging Major League Soccer clearly was uh, an idea that came too soon or was an idea destined to fail, one or the other. But either way, they've had to pull back from that. Now, what is going to make the NASL unique, different, and worthwhile for investors and worthwhile for football people, soccer people, to take an interest in in the next few years when USL has a D2 status also, has more clubs, has more of a critical mass, has a, a more uh, structured uh, front office to the league? All of those are challenges the NASL needs to address. So rhetorically, they can change, but I think structurally there have to be several changes coming pretty soon here. Jonathan, should they just keep their head down now and just get through a season without losing more teams and maybe adding one or two for, for the season after? Is it is it time for the NASL just to take a deep breath and say, right, we still exist, we've still got clubs, we've got communities to serve, which is, I think, you know, one of the concepts of of D2 soccer that sometimes gets lost in this, that these are communities of football fans that, that need serving with a product and an experience. Is, is it time for the NSL just to like take a breather? I would, but that's why they don't ask me, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, look, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to communities that are not served by having teams in their, in where they are in some form or another. And I think especially about Raleigh and Indianapolis, which are not small cities. You know, they're they're not the Bostons and New Yorks and, and LA's of the world, but they're significant population centers in parts of the country that are not a close drive to any major league soccer team. So it makes perfect sense for them to have NASL teams and then to go from there and prove that perhaps they might have the potential to be something more down the road. Um, it was very refreshing to me to read the statement that the NASL put out earlier today, Monday, um, it was pretty humble. 
It was, wasn't it? It was. It said. It said. It's. I'll, I'll read from it. I have it up here. The new NASL will have three priorities going forward. It will continue its responsibility to work collaboratively with soccer stakeholders across North America to help grow the game. Second, the league will take a more prudent approach to expansion with a more rigorous vetting process by creating an expansion committee. And haven't all of us on this show been waiting to hear that for a while? Lastly, there will be a focus on long-term growth, and as such, the NASL has become begun implementing financial sustainability measures to grow the league. I, I just, and on that last point, the NASL's mantra was always, you can come and go, you can swim in the water, and if you can make it great, and if you don't, we don't care. And I think those of us who who looked at it, even, even if Major League Soccer is all the way at the other extreme in terms of guaranteeing stability to excess almost. We, we look at this and, and say, no, the NASL was also at the wrong extreme. Those of us who don't want to see Portland, Portland, sorry, Portsmouth, Fiorentina, Rangers, Parma, right. Leeds United even, these great European teams that have completely cratered and 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 are not lost per se because as we've seen with Fiorentina and Rangers they've come back but something is lost and we don't want that that to happen here yes we want there to be levels of competition so that these teams have to push each other and be better and and not just sit on their laurels as some teams in major league soccer quite clearly do and now the NASL is in a place where with a little more humility they can do things that will make their way of doing things more sustainable, bring it more towards a medium that then helps the folks who believe in that financial model make the case with reason instead of with just screaming from their couch, that there are ways for Major League Soccer to open up and they'll be okay. And they won't fall through the net. You know, that, that I think is where the opportunity is. And the, the other part of it, and I think this has to be said, I said it the last time I was on the show, we've all discussed it many times. Um, this press release today that the NASL sent out was, to my knowledge, and Dave, you would know this better than I, and perhaps almost better than anybody, was the first time I have seen the NASL itself acknowledge that they officially severed ties, all ties with traffic in November of 2016. Right. I saw it reported elsewhere. No, I, I, never right. I think you're right. I think you're right. Right. That in and of itself was such a stumbling block for so many people perception-wise with the NASL. And we saw Steve Malik and, and Bill Edwards uh, in Tampa uh, address it directly in ways that... Um, I've never seen before. I'll let I'll, I'll read Neil from your interview with with Stephen Malik. Uh, we had a couple of clubs that were not happy there was still a lingering traffic involvement, and we were able to clean that up. That was a big deal. It was not something that was necessarily all that public, but it was causing them unrest. It had not been fully settled. Well, and he later said it was an unresolved matter that was hanging out there. So to that extent, that's real. Settling that allowed us to go about our business without question marks. That's pretty clear. And, and then 
the, a couple days earlier came the zinger from Bill Edwards. Cardick, you know him pretty well, I think. He said bluntly, I left the NASL because I believed it to be corrupt. <laughs> what what more needed to be said than that? I think that really finally put on the table what so many of us have been saying from the outside for Sola. And which you said on the soccer file in our last time we discussed this, where you raised that question of how much has the, the, the downfall of traffic sports led to what appeared to be then the downfall of the NASL. And it's, it's pretty clear that that was an issue. And of course it would be. I mean, you know, as we've, as we've discussed privately, you know, when you have an organization that, that's um, massively central to the entire FBI Department of Justice investigation of corruption in football in this region, uh, let's not forget, it gets called the FIFA scandal, but what's on the, what's on the, uh, on the docket um, in, the, in the courtroom in New York is pretty much all to do with football and soccer in this region. Um, you would be worried as a business person being involved in an organization with money still lingering around from a company that was involved in those extremely, uh, let's say, dubious deals uh, to avoid getting into that whole discussion. I mean, I'm curious, you know, my, my take on this really is that I think, you know, I'm a big fan of second division football and third division football and fourth division football in this country because I don't think there's any way that Major League Soccer can cover this country and there's no college sport there um, to fill the gaps in the way that college football does, does with the NFL. It's not going to happen. It has to be lower division teams that do that. Um, and... You know, you've got to do the work in the communities and build clubs up from the grassroots level and make them bigger and bigger. And that's what always frustrated me about the rhetoric from NASL was that, you know, they weren't they were putting the uh, cart before the horse. You know, they were talk, well, talking big without having actually done the work yet. And that's where have we heard that before, by the way, in so many areas of life. Um, it That's so much of what frustrated me and so many other people. Um, to hear from the NASL about their goals and aspirations and say, okay, then go do it. You want to have pro rail with the, with the NPSL? Go do it. You know, but yeah. don't keep saying you're going to actually go do it. And it never happened. And why did it never happen? Well, one of the reasons why is that some of the NASL owners had cold feet about it. Yeah. Dave, um, Dave, Dave yeah. Martinez, I just wanted to, to, to ask you about this new ownership at the Cosmos because there was a feeling with the old NASL that Seamus O'Brien and the Cosmos ownership were the ones who were maybe the most militantly anti-MLS in, in, in that league. Um, has there been any suggestion about what the Cosmos approach is going to be on that front? Well, we're getting our first taste of Rocco Camiso tomorrow. He's going to be conducting a conference call, so I'll get a better feel for it later. But I, I think right now it's too early to figure out where their ideology is. Uh, and would I be surprised if they came out and said we're challenging the D1 system again? Absolutely. Uh, this is a time of humility for the North American Soccer League and for the New York Cosmos. And again, hearing so much of discussion, I love being on the show with the people that you have on because there's so much knowledge across the board about perception, about where these clubs were and, and how certain situations came about. Uh, talking about the traffic situation where on one end of the spectrum you have owners who were clearly put off by the relationship. And in many cases, a lot of those same owners that were put off by it were begging the league office to please talk and address the traffic situation. But within the league office, uh, whether it be Bill Peterson's uh, decision or some of his affiliation with the Cosmos, they decided to take it a separate way and keep quiet about it, even though the affiliation with traffic, from what I understand, 
was on a steady decline for the past 12 months. It would have made great headlines. They mismanaged it. And there's certain there's so many things along the way that were mismanaged in the NASL front office. They went for as, uh, for lack of a better term, for as socialist as the MLS model may be. The NASL model went so completely to the to the opposite end of that spectrum, where their their front office just literally had no teeth. So when you have a, a lack of control of narrative, when you have a lack of vision as as, as it comes to uh, league sponsorships, because again, I'm sure you guys have heard the same thing over the years. They've turned down some some deals basically on ideology alone, the deals that could have helped feed clubs for the long term, the front office never did that. So this is a vital restart, and the Cosmos are a big part of it. Without the Cosmos being there, uh, getting this D2 sanctioning, without the Cosmos being that ace team, we're not talking about the NASL at all today. So I think it's very important to see where the Cosmos will be taking this club ideologically. Uh, will there be a push in the future, again, to challenge for D1? Perhaps. I mean, the way that the pyramid is structured in this country it's it's very difficult in major markets to sell yourself when you're immediately classified and branded as an inferior product because that's what D2 is. Right. However, they have to find they do have to find a happy medium. They have to find a way as Jonathan was just saying uh, to make the best of their sanctioning, to make the best of their place in the soccer community and let's face it guys, this is a uh, soccer is a growing sport in this country. There is opportunity everywhere, but right now whether it's the Cosmos or NASL I think we're going to see a more humble league, and we saw it already in their press releases. We're going to see a more humble league moving forward uh, and trying to play nice with everybody. And long term, we'll probably see a different vision. But for now, it's play nice and survive. Simon, can I know, I was talking about this with Dave this morning when the NASL's press release came out. Dave wrote on January 26th of last year, 2016, the story headline, NASL and traffic sports and discussions and relationship that so many of us have referred back to so many times since then. Right. 17 days short of a year, the NASL finally acknowledged that they had done it. And, and, and Jonathan, you know, that's, that's the frustration that was felt by so many owners because here's the thing. The, the other problem that people don't seem to talk about, uh, let's give a little bit of praise to the USL because they do this masterfully. But when it comes to narrative – when it comes to getting a story out there, when it comes to building an image and, and building relationships with media, the USL, whether D2 or D6, are doing a thousand times more work, a thousand times better work than the NASL front office ever did. And part of that problem is that they were always too guarded. Here, as Jonathan just said, we're, we're talking about a, year, a year's worth of declining relationships with traffic. And Bill Peterson and the Brain Trust and the NASL don't put that as front page news. They're not going to media sources to, to promote that, to show the health of the league. These are things that, look, and again, I just finished talking about how being D2 immediately labels you as an inferior product. At the same point, it doesn't mean you don't have great stories to tell. And the, and the disassociation with traffic is the best story you could put out there Yet the owners and Bill Peterson in the front office, many of the owners and, owners and Bill Peterson in the front office, didn't want to go public with that. I think that the, the lack of control of their own narrative and promoting the best stories that they have, I think that also shot them in the foot as well. And in the midst of all of this, there, there are larger problems, clearly. But the fact that they wouldn't at least take advantage of the fact that they have some good stories coming out of the league, 
it's to mask all this bad stuff. I, I just I think that that's a vital place where the league has to take a step back and say, how do we approach narrative? How do we approach the the image of the league? Look at the the D two sanctioning. I mean, within minutes, the USL had graphics out that said United two with the D and the two clearly. I mean, those little things, those little. Those, those small maneuvers made through communications and everything else, it makes the USL seem stronger than what they are because, as we all know, their operations on a club level are much smaller in budget, much smaller in size than in the ASL. I want, I want to go to, to Neil for, for in a minute just to talk about specifically about North Carolina for a little bit. But before I do that, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there, Dave, and I think I think it's a little bit of a hangover from the CONCACAF culture that the NASL picked up through its relationship with traffic. I don't really want to say anything more than that specifically, but that attitude of like, let's just hope the bad news goes away. Let's just keep that quiet. Let's, you know, let's talk about the things we want to talk about without addressing what everybody else is talking about is classically what, what CONCACAF has done throughout all its crises. And there is a similar sort of feel about those two organizations that, that comes I from I wonder there. why. Well, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, but, I, I wanna, but on a serious on a serious point, though, just I just wanted to make this point that, and I know Kartik does this as well sometimes. But every now and then, you get a phone call from somebody internationally who's interested in what's going on in soccer in this country, who may be somewhere down the line a potential investor, or maybe just a curious person, or, or whatever in in the soccer business, and they pick up on very small things. And, and those narratives are, are absolutely vital when they, they don't really understand how things work over here, right? And like it or not, actually, you look at MLS or the lower divisions and foreign investment in American soccer is, is, is part of the growth of the game here. And you ask them, you try to explain to them the difference between the NASL and the USL. They want to know who's running it, who's behind it, who they're together with, right? And the answers for NASL were traffic sports, which is just a massive red light to anybody who wants to get involved in investing in football in this part of the world. And on the USL side, what was the story they heard? Well, they're kind of connected to MLS. People are using that as a route into MLS, and they get on well with MLS. They've got these reserve teams and so on. I mean, which one are you going to invest in if you're a foreign investor looking at it? Maybe neither, to be honest, because neither is particularly appealing, but certainly not looking good for NASL on that front. Neil, in terms of a club in NASL who want to go to MLS, a highly competitive expansion process going on in MLS at the moment. Is that kind of community building of a club, is that what they're focusing on now, on, on really trying to be, outgrow NASL locally by just being such a well-run community-embedded club? Uh, that's a good question. Before I turn to that answer, I want to put just a small bow on the traffic sports discussion. Okay. Um, and what I'm about to say is not guesswork, and I invite you to read into what I'm about to say as much as you like. Uh, as Dave alluded to, there had been a long festering amount, of a year to 15-month festering mistrust between the NASL and traffic sports for obvious reasons. Uh, that had essentially stalled any effort to purge traffic from the NASL and in their investment interests. I would only point out the fact that the last person inside the NASL to enter in, in, into any successful negotiation uh, with traffic sports was Steve Malik of NCFC. I'll just leave it at that. Now, regarding NCFC, um, 
that you you I give you credit for that question. That is exactly what they would like to do. Uh, and they, I think that NCFC for quite some time, when back when they were with the Railhawks, have sought to become very inward-looking, uh, to their credit, frankly, uh, and more of a locally-based uh, organization, partnerships with the local developmental academies with Capital Area Soccer League, uh, both on the boys' side and and coming next year or this year, or later this year on, on the girls' side, which will only be enhanced uh, with the arrival of the NWSL. But that is what they would like uh, to achieve, is a fully functioning, uh, internally self-sustaining football club. Right. Now, w- whether whether they, the, it all comes to pass is one thing, but there's certainly, you know, for years at that, I can tell you for years, even when Traffic Sports was the owner of the team, back when Kurt Johnson was the general manager and still is, that was his aspiration. He's of the area. He has ties and bridges into every aspect of the U.S. soccer community. That that is what his aspiration was. And it it wasn't really until Steve Malik came on board, who also has a, who is local and has a hyper-local interest and has uh, far more resources, that that aspiration started taking root. Uh, and, you know, as I tweeted the other day, it's rather remarkable, and I guess you know, everything is in flux when it comes to lower division soccer or American soccer in general, but it's rather remarkable when you look the path that the football club here in Raleigh, uh, Durham, Cary has taken in just the last 15 months. 15 months ago, and Cardigan and I have talked about this, 15 months ago there were people in the NASL that just said that they need to let the Railhawks die that the league would be better off if they would just let let it wither and that the league should never have to take it over and focus on circling the wagons around some of the, the other larger markets. Now, 15 months later, uh, they've rebranded. They have a new club. They're ringing in a, a, a first division women's team, and they're one of 10 markets who have been publicly announced as being in the, in the, in the, the bidding for four MLS spots. Right. Uh, and, in, in a 15-month time, that has happened. Uh, so that is what this team would like. This is what the, that's what this club would like to do. Uh, I think you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the MLS process goes along. It's going to be a long process. I, I hope that Steve Malik has his eyes open. I think he does. He, he's gotten a lot of trial by fire over the last 15 months. I mean, he, when he bought the, t- the club in October of last year, he was a complete novice to the soccer industry. Uh, his learning curve has been sharp and very fast. Right. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But, but even if MLS doesn't work out, uh, the, the gains that have been made, at least at this level, have been r- remarkable. Uh, but the progress is going to have to continue, and, and there's still a lot to be done, particularly when it comes to building a pipeline to the very robust youth academies that are already in this area. I'm right. not sure there's a clear sign of the fact that some of these bridges are now being restored between the NASL and the rest of the American soccer community than Stephen Malik taking a NWSL team. I don't think that would have happened. And I, I personally for as much as I know about the women's game and sort of the politics of American soccer, I don't think that would have happened if traffic sports had still been involved with the NASL. No. And, and I just, and I, it's all, it's funny. You mentioned, you know, even if North Carolina FC 
only remains sustainable at the second division level. I've said this for a long time, and you all know it. If we want to have promotion and relegation in this country, and a lot of us are not as against it as the tinfoil crowd thinks, if it's to happen... I'm going to have to explain that one to the international audience at some <laughs> stage, but I, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it simply with a reference that there are some rather active people on Twitter on the issue of promotion and relegation who are quite virulent in their opposition to MLS, who Jonathan describes as the tinfoil brigade. Yes. Continue, if, Jonathan. If it's to actually happen, you need everybody to get along. Even if they don't agree on everything, they need to at least get along. And you need thriving, strong Lower, lower divisions, especially a second division with good-sized markets like Indianapolis, like Raleigh-Durham and others that build that base up. And then you're also going to need MLS to stop expanding at some point, which is why I, told, why I asked Don Garber a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about expansion. Uh, you know, I, I asked him, when MLS shuts the door and that forces some of these markets that don't get in to strengthen the second division and the third division. Is that going to improve the viability? Hold on, my phone's ringing. i got to stop that. Come on, jeez. Well, while Jonathan deals with that. It's my mother. It's my mother of all people. Um, <laughs> call, trying to call into the show, I guess. He objects to your pro-rail position. <laughs> <laughs> no, the point, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is once that expansion door is shut, and these cities have to become more comfortable with being second division cities, with third division markets. Then you are building up a sustainable base of all of these other places that can have, that can lead the way towards pro-rel because the lower divisions are more sustainable and stronger. That's what we're looking for. Garber didn't want to talk about it, obviously, because he never wants to talk about it. But having stronger second division markets is part of how to get there. It is indeed. A one job. One part of that part of that conversation. Oh, sorry about that. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Part of that conversation also, John, is that once the MLS decides to close its doors, then the true nature of Division Two status befalls all the minnows of the D two, D three, D four ranks. And what I mean by that is that Don Garber's a smart man. All he has to do to destabilize the NASL, and he's done it is to tell everybody we're expanding to 28 markets. <laughs> and all of a sudden, every minnow across the country thinks that they are going to be the one to get that sanctioning. Look, Cincinnati's no minnow right now. They're doing fantastic work. They, 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 the club is being well run, great attendance. But do you really think Major League Soccer wants to go into, into Cincinnati with limited uh, market share? I, I don't think that Cincinnati is necessarily the, uh, the, the type of city that they're looking to get into. I do see the MLS eventually going to about 32 teams, but once you shut that down and D2, D3 teams are forced with the reality of their situation, of their existence, then yes, I agree with Jonathan. At some point you have to think to yourself, all right, if we're going to be labeled uh, inferior by classification, what is it that we can do to make ourselves great? And I think that that is, as Jonathan said, that is at at a point where, those owners can turn around and say, you know what, maybe promotion relegation is something that could work out for us. I I think one of the key 
points here if we're having this discussion about MLS expansion and numbers is that USL has very aggressively over the course of the last three years, and Cincinnati is a great example of it, used the carrot of potentially being in that next set of MLS expansion teams or in the set of expansion exactly. teams after that to sell USL franchises. Now, when that pipeline gets shut down, I don't know how USL attracts new investors to buy, uh, buy clubs unless they have their own sustainable model, which has some sort of financial incentive for these owners to invest in USL. So uh, we're talking a lot about NASL today, but we also have to talk about how USL was able to attract the Cincinnati's and the Sacramento's and the Louisville's and others uh, recently on the backs of the success of Orlando, really on the backs of the success of one club. They've been able to take that Orlando blueprint and get San Antonio to switch leagues, get, uh, get Cincinnati, Louisville, Sacramento all to join USL to make the league look very strong. But those uh, strong market teams in USL all have uh, MLS ambitions, whereas the clubs left over in USL, which operate essentially at a D3 level, the Charlestons, the Harrisburgs, the Pittsburghs, the Richmonds, uh, are what's left the core of the league once you get done with MLS expansion. So I think that's another interesting discussion in this whole D2 matter. I do want to talk about USL, actually. I I was wanting to turn to that. I mean... Does this, and I'll start off with you, Kartik, on this one. The fact that they are now labeled D2, does, you know, it's, they're treating it as a victory, as, as Dave was saying, they have the social media, uh, you know, imagery ready to go as soon as that announcement was made and, and, and they're, they're celebrating it. But does it actually change anything, really, for the experience for fans or players in that league? Uh, no, it doesn't change a thing. And, and in fact, I think this was a, uh, it was a, uh, Pyrrhic victory or hollow victory for USL because I think their goal going into this offseason was to kill off uh, the NASL completely, poach the best clubs such as North Carolina FC and Indy 11 from NASL, and then to have permanent have a full D2 status. They didn't. They weren't able to accomplish that. So it's a pyrrhic victory. They're uh, a provisional D2. There are internal issues between clubs in the league. There are internal issues uh, as to how they can meet the provisions that the USSF is laying out in order to be a full D2 in 2018. That having been said, and this goes back to the point Dave made earlier, their uh, coordination, their uh, PR, their, um, the, the way that they, they, they dress up their uh, their product is so far superior to what NASL does at this point. As you said, within minutes, you had a statement from USL. You had all the teams uh, with statements that sang from the same song sheet. You had unified graphics. And this is part of what you're seeing in USL. USL Productions, which I don't think we're going to get into tonight, but USL Productions, I know you're somewhat familiar with it, Simon. That is a big deal in the world of American soccer, what Absolutely. USL is undertaking. Uh, it's it's a potentially a game changer at the lower division level uh, that they are investing in this uh, level of production to, to support and sustain their clubs. That's something NASL uh, in their decentralized model that Jonathan talked about earlier, that free market model that was taken to an extreme uh, would never think of doing. And, and same thing for USL's club services division, which is something that uh, when I worked at the NASL five years ago, we had talked about doing and then decided it wasn't uh, consistent with our values and our business model. And five years later, USL is servicing their clubs uh, in a manner that NASL can only dream of. So those are all very positive things for USL. But 
I think they have some hurdles in their relationship with Major League Soccer to get over because uh, one of the things that was pointed out to me in a conversation uh, with a very, very credible source uh, that would wish to remain anonymous on Saturday morning uh, that came up about USL getting this provisional sanctioning was that there are, and I know Neil and I have actually done it um, in in one of our uh, uh, private conversations, gone through the number of MLS reserve teams that do not meet D2 standards with stadium size and whose ownership in Major League Soccer would probably like to mitigate some of the costs. They want to have a reserve team to develop players and to, and to get those players competitive matches. It doesn't make a difference to them, whether that's at the D2 level or the D3 level, and they don't want to necessarily incur the costs on a product they're losing money on anyway, which is their reserve teams, uh, to have to get into 5,000-seat stadiums and do a certain level of marketing, a certain level of um mm. Other things that incur costs uh, to be a Division Two team. So that's something USL is going to have to work out in the next uh, nine months before sanctioning for 2018 comes up. Yeah, we just stopped thinking about various possible scenarios and fallouts of things going wrong. But I mean, what you're saying there makes you wonder if somewhere down the line, USL doesn't perhaps have a D2 league and a D3 league. I mean, they've played yeah. around in that game in the past, haven't they? With different And what levels. would we call that, gentlemen? USL one and two. <laughs> would, would, would there be promotion and relegation between the two, perhaps? Yes. Well, would you if you had reserve teams down there in the D3 level? I mean, if you were just playing at some training ground as Red Bulls 2 or whatever, I'm just giving an example, would you worry about... Would you want to be promoted to that level where you got to improve your ground? I mean, it is, it is, that is the internal contradiction that USL has to address, though, isn't it, Jonathan? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think the scenario that I see is... Whatever level the USL, the B teams end up at, you look at Spain and Germany, where it's a common practice for Barcelona and Real Madrid and, and any number of other clubs in, in countries like that, where the B teams play in the lower divisions and they can't go up and down, or they can only go up or down so far. Right. And I think that would make perfect sense for the United States. And by the way, Cardiff, as you know well, with these two Division Twos that we have right now, we've been here before. Yeah, as we were in 2010. And at that point, USL made the decision towards the end of that year to just go ahead and consolidate all their D2 and D3 teams together in a D3 league and wait out a potential collapse of the NASL, which got D2 status. And it almost happened uh, this offseason, although they got uh, they got provisional D2 also. Uh, just to finish up on the point on the MLS reserve teams, your point is very well taken, Simon. That's what I'm referring to. I was a little vague. There are a number of MLS reserve teams, such as Red Bulls 2, Swoop Park Rangers, uh, LA Galaxy 2, that play at training grounds grounds or play at small stadiums uh, that uh, do not meet Division II standards. And in the U.S. soccer uh, guidelines for Division II, you have to play in a stadium that seats 5,000 people and you have to have a certain level of front office marketing that is done by the independent USL teams that is not done by uh, the MLS reserve teams for the most part. There are some teams uh, that try and sell uh, tickets to the reserve games, like Portland, like Orlando. There are others that don't bother. So that is the th- those are the things in question when I talk about the p- possibility that some MLS owners who want to mitigate costs because the reserve teams are a loss leader, right? They're meant to feed the first team, but they're not, they're not operating them in the same business sense that the owner of FC Cincinnati or San Antonio FC or Colorado Springs switchbacks are. So... 
there is this inherent tension within USL or between USL and some MLS clubs, not MLS as a whole, but certain clubs uh, on how they go forward as a Division Two with that in mind. And, and Karnik, I think it's interesting to note also that so much of the USL success over the past few years, up until this point, uh, has been as a benefactor of the of the relationship with with Major League Soccer. And it's funny now that when it's at its most critical point, when they're looking for that Division Two status, the reserve leagues come front and center. The reserve teams, excuse yeah. me, come front and center as as a roadblock to it, where you finally get to see because it, you're right. What is Major League Soccer looking to do at all costs across all levels? It doesn't matter whether it's player acquisition, uh, whether whatever it may be. They're looking to do things on the cheap. They're looking to get the most bang out of their buck. And what better way to do that than to operate a, a very small uh, side in the Division Three system where there really are no large-scale requirements, as you said, for staffing, for for player, whatever it may be, the investment that you have to have, both in the front office and on the field, uh, whether it be uh, your home stadiums or not, there are specific guidelines in D2 that are now front and center. And that that relationship over the next couple of years is going to be interesting to see the, the evolution that we see there. Because I just, if, if the USL is trying to, to paint themselves as a D2 league, I look at D2, and I think that it should be competitive, competitively based, not necessarily a, a breeding ground for the next batch of youth players from around the world. It should be competitively based. It is the second division of your country. And when it comes to those reserve sides, are they going to become a hindrance? Because you're looking at about a third of the league that's never going to meet, let alone D3 standards, D2 standards. So what is the USL going to do? The only thing I could see in the future is what was just mentioned by Jonathan, is a complete split, a USL 1 and a USL 2, reserve leagues down to the D3 level to keep that relationship with MLS fixed, and promoting competition at that Division 2 level. It's really the only way that I see this working out long term. I disagree. Go on, Jonathan. I, I disagree. I, I disagree for two reasons. One one is that if, if, the, if all of the B teams – are stuck in a third division where they're just competing against each other. You're going to end up with the old MLS reserve league where there's not as much competitiveness in the games. That's why they wanted to get the NASL, sorry, to get the USL B teams into a competition with the independent USL teams. Um, There's there's also the issue there of, of if you do that, I mean, at the moment, USL is able to at least. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've written a column about why I think there should be more regionalization outside of MLS. But I yes. think when you look, you look at USL, you've got at least an Eastern Conference and a Western Conference. If you split it in half and only had those reserve teams, I think Jonathan's right. You'd have a de facto MLS reserve team, but played across across um, East Coast and West Coast, and you'd force that to happen in the division above as well. So. I could, if you had more teams, to, it could work. Sorry, just Dave. To, just to clarify that point, not every team that's currently classified in D2 and USL will meet. Let's say, let's say U.S. soccer will begin to strictly enforce the D2 standards, okay? Because from what I understand, U.S. soccer was not too thrilled with either league because both of them had had the same guidelines to meet since 2014, and both of them had fallen woefully short of that so perhaps u.s soccer as a governing body can start strictly enforcing that d2 standard so that the reserve teams are not the only teams in d3 
but several USL sides which have continuously fa- uh, failed to make the marker. I'll give you, for instance, uh, Arizona is a great for instance. How many different owners, how many different names? Arizona's gone through hell and back, and they don't meet that D2 standard. So you're not just sticking the D3, just to clarify, you're not just sticking the D3 reserve MLS sides to play up against each other. There will be other independent sides, but I think the D2 standard should really start to be upheld, whether it be the investment from ownership to the stadiums that they play in. If you want D2 to mean something in this country, and if it's going to be competitively based, then I think the playing field should be equal for all involved, and it should be the best of the best of the lower divisions. And then let the rest play out in the D3. Not saying the D3 won't be competitive. A lot of MLS reserve teams don't play for competition, folks. The the Red Bull Red Bull 2 won the USL, but it wasn't like they were uh, mandated to win last year. So having them play against smaller independent sides still gives MLS what they want while also promoting the strength of the best teams in D2. They're going to go that route. It, it, was, it was pretty bad toward the end of the quote-unquote reserve league era right. in terms oh, of the sure. quality of the competition. And I also think if, if you're going to strictly enforce the stadium rule on the MLS teams that have B teams, you're basically just telling the MLS owners to open the doors of the MLS stadiums and turn the lights on a few more days a year. Which which might not be the worst thing, but that's how they're going to get around it. Yeah, I could just give an example of Jason Christ and Garth Lagerwey, who I talked to when they were both still at Real Salt Lake. Obviously, Christ is at Orlando now, Lagerwey at Seattle, about the old MLS Reserve League. And they felt at that point in time, it was not even worthwhile for their young players that they were developing through RSL system. And RSL had a had a youth club in PDL. They were uh, starting kind of the whole academy thing at the time. Uh, to even have them, uh, the academy was in Arizona, by the way, not in Utah, but um, to have them play in the MLS Reserve League. They felt like it was much better at the time for them to loan their players to NASL clubs or USL clubs because they weren't getting competitive matches. So I know how MLS coaches and general managers feel about this. Now, does it make sense from a business perspective? Maybe not. Maybe those reserve teams need need not be in the same divisions as FC Cincinnati, who are drawing 20,000 fans a game, or or Sacramento, who's drawing 12 or 13,000 fans a game. But uh, I, I do think it would be, from a technical standpoint, uh, a, a bit problematic if they drop those reserve teams into something less competitive. I just wish these reserve teams would would be forced to do what some of them have done, or what some of the teams that have affiliations rather than being official uh, reserve teams have done, uh, and and have their own identity, have their own stadium, be their own club. Um, you know, maybe you face ownership cross ownership issues somewhere down the line in twenty years if Rio Grande Valley Toros ever got into. A situation right. where they'd be playing against Houston Dynamo in the U.S. Open Cup or some whatever, you might have that down the line. But I just look at, at those clubs that have have got that identity, and you know, Philadelphia Union tried to do it, didn't they, with Bethlehem Steel a little bit? You know, give give them a separate identity. Don't just call them Philadelphia Union Two. I mean, I can't think of anything less imaginative in this whole uh, situation in the lower divisions than than having the chance to create a second or third division club. And calling it Red Bulls Two, or Galaxy well, you know, Two, you know, or, or you know, Barcelona B, which is where it all came from in the first place. I mean, you know, I, Simon, I I've long believed that that's the future of the lower divisions. Not that I like it, but I think that that's sort of the natural progression. But I can tell you, you know, within the past couple of months, I've interviewed Jake Edwards and sort of posited that position on my part that whether this, you know, the Rio Grande Valley or the Reno model is the future of right. of 
lower divisions. Uh, and I thought I was serving up a softball for him to say, yeah, that's where we want to go. He, he pushed back on that. He mm. said, no, I think that will work good in some markets. But with some, it'll be better. With some MLS teams, it would be better to have a two team. And with some markets, they're going to want to be totally independent. I mean, I gave him the example of you know the way that minor league baseball used to be, which used to be totally independent teams before it gradually migrated to the farm system we have today. And I, I presumed and sort of foresaw that lower division soccer may be heading in that direction very slowly. I thought that USL would be at the forefront of that. I thought it made you know, sense from a business point of view. Uh, but when talking to Jake Edwards, the uh, president of USL, he pushed back on that, which I was actually surprised about. Mm. Uh, I guess I, w- I was a little pleased <laughs> personally. Right. Uh, but but he took the position that it's not a one-size-fits-all model and that uh, that the independent model still has its, its place. Independent as, as far as a franchise league, of course, but independent model still has its place and is still going to be the predominant uh, club model within the United Soccer League. As it should be, because he can take the USL to markets that don't have MLS teams and be very successful with them, right. as we've seen. The, the benefit, I think, to the the B-team model, even if it is like Bethlehem Steel, and I think for as much money as the union are losing on them, they're doing something very smart where they're establishing a beachhead in the Lehigh Valley, which is an hour and a half away you know, like by, by car, it's it's close enough that the players can train in Chester during the week, sit with the senior team, sit with the youth academy players, which is what they want to do. They want to have everybody in the same place because of the benefits that that brings, and then go up to Bethlehem on the weekends, play in a another town, not quite a different market, but far enough away that they're putting a beachhead in another region of Pennsylvania, and obviously they get to bring back the name Bethlehem Steel, which has plenty of benefit too. Right. Okay. Last few minutes, I want to do a little bit of uh, crystal ball gazing, if we can. Yeah, it's January, and perhaps that makes us optimistic. Perhaps it makes us pessimistic. But we've had all this wrangling been going on now for two or three months or, or, or longer. If you look at the the roots of this crisis, it goes back even longer than that to to the foundation of the NASL, which fundamentally was a split from the USL. Where are we going to be in the next five years' time? In five years' time, we were seeing also, and we haven't talked about this today, and I'm going to do a show about this, we're seeing also a lot of activity going on at the NPSL level with some really interesting stories there and little community clubs being formed all over the country, sometimes by sons of rock stars and sometimes just by local community people. And it's a fascinating situation at the fourth division but just looking at the second, third division tier, where do you think we're going to be in five years' time? Are we looking at inevitable merger of these two leagues? Are we looking at the NSL eventually going out of business? What do we think is going to happen? Start off with Neil, Kartik, oh. Dave, and Jonathan. Oh, Simon, why did you start with me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. Um, Five years. I wish you'd said twelve months. Uh, five years from now, I. Jeez. All right, I'm going to take a cop out answer that's probably entirely incorrect. Uh, having having said that preface, I'm going to take the somewhat cockeyed view that there is going to continue to be this roller coaster between the NESL and USL. That down will come up 
and up will become down. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago, <laughs> three, four years ago, that the NASL was doing quite well right. uh, from an expansion and ownership point of view. And USL, prior to their partnership with Major League Soccer, were folding teams left and right and were hanging on by a thread. Uh, that has obviously changed with the partnership of, of, with Major League Soccer. And as long as that continues, uh, then that's going to continue to buttress that league. But as, as Jonathan and others have pointed out, Major League Soccer's expansion is going to both continue but also at least reach some sort of an end point, uh, certainly within the next three or four years. So if we're talking five years from now, I think – there will always be other options, other cheaper options for lower division soccer owners who want to get in the business. And whoever is perceived to be on top is going to be commanding $5 million entry fees, and whoever is down is going to be a more attractive option. And which league that is depends on the situation. So uh, it may sound like a cop-out answer, but it's entirely conceivable. And <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. And as and as Cardick as Cardick will admit, and I'll give him credit for saying this, there may be there may be folks within the soccer apparatus who have an interest in NESL and USL continuing to to do battle. So <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they'll put their thumbs on the scale and are happy for there continue to be competition. And oh, by the way, I, I subscribe to the fact that I like the fact that there's competition between the leagues. We've seen the ugly side of it. But I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I've said for years that, that USL is much better now than they would have been if, if the TOA had never split off. They're much better off now. It forced them to sharpen. It forced them to get better. And now the NASL is in the same position. They're now purging things they should have purged a long time ago because of that competitive uh, balance between the, the leagues. So the corrective my, effect my of the market. Is that I think yeah. they're going to continue to do this dance. Good one. Okay. Kartik. Yeah, first off, I look forward to listening to your show on D4, Simon, because if I were an investor in American soccer right now and I did not have the $150 million or what it takes to get into Major League Soccer, obviously that would be my preference, would be to go to MLS. I would not invest in the second or third division. I would do what people like Dennis Crowley you're doing and Sting Sun, who you reference, I would invest in the fourth division, do something community-based, do something cool. And I think that that's, that's really kind of a cool hip thing. Maybe it's a phase, maybe it's a cycle, but uh, that's the cycle we're in right now. So I'm looking forward to that show. Um, on this, I tend to agree with Neil. I, I actually have uh, gone back and forth on whether or not we would see a merger which remain, which keeps a league that's a second division league of under the USL umbrella, but with the NASL name and some of the NASL ideological principles, like the USL Premier League, if that would be a D2 league in, in five years, which incorporates some of the business and ideological principles of the NASL, I think that might be a goal of U.S. soccer, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think for the point, the reason Neil gave and I, I the theory originated with me. There is a, another league, a behemoth out there, and a marketing company associated with that behemoth out there uh, that likes to put their thumbs on the scale and likes to see competition between the uh, the leagues at the lower division level, in my opinion, so that they never there's never a unified, strong lower division that might attract some uh, some interest. Uh, Are you suggesting that, that Don Garber is taking a sort of Winston Churchillian attitude yes. of supporting yes. France against Germany and Germany against France? <laughs> yes, yes. I am. Um, I, 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 I believe oh that for some time. <laughs> Not all of us are that old, Simon, you know. 
Yeah, right, right. But I mean, there's this there's this theory with the tinfoil crowd that Jonathan referenced earlier that uh, everything U.S. soccer and MLS does is against NASL. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I think NASL might be gone at this point had MLS and U.S. soccer not thought about it and thought it might be in their best interest to keep the league uh, on on some sort of life support and resuscitate them so that uh, any uh, USL doesn't become too strong. And then a similar thing might happen if NASL's on top. So I think you're going to have two independent leagues. Uh, eventually working towards some sort of um, accord where you might get promotion and relegation at the lower division level. But it won't be this thing where NASL is working with NPSL and USL is working with PDL and they're completely uh, in different silos and different pyramids. I think there might be something that comes together. We will not see promotion and relegation at the MLS level for a long, long time. But I think so five years from now, I would say we still have two independent leagues, but two leagues that uh, maybe the communication is better. Maybe there's better communication at the club, the club level at the D2 level. And that forces the leagues. Uh, USL is an independent entity. Their franchises are franchises, but maybe the owners in USL push back. And of course, NASL is a team run league. So I think you have two independent leagues, but two leagues that are coming closer to synergy and eight to 10 years from now, or one league with maybe a USL premier league and you have promotion and relegation. Interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Dave. All right. So I, I tend to look at the resolution of what had happened first, right? With this, this D2 sanctioning for two leagues. And I tend to think that it's for a couple of reasons. One, uh, both leagues threaten lawsuit at USSF, uh, and USSF does not want to get into any kind of litigation. So they both get their D2 status. Uh, the other end of the spectrum is that nobody wants to oversee a collapse of the league. And I'm sure Sunil Gulati, after everything that he's accomplished over the last several years, people tend to forget his, uh, his position of clout now in FIFA. You don't want to see that damage. So they did everything they could to salvage these leagues. But the overall picture remains the same. Major League Soccer and U.S. Soccer are tied at the hip, and I'm not a tinfoil guy. I'm not the per- I'm not a conspiracy conspiracy theory uh, type of person, but I am the type of person to look at what's going on in front of my eyes and say, okay, there is a strategy here. So from what I see, uh, I think that Major League Soccer retains their D1 status. I think eventually, whether it be next year or the year after, the USL and NASL are going to hit a crossroads where. There are going to be – the one thing that saved the NASL is that they have major money in ownership. They're going to want to stay in that Division II status at the Division II level. I think that over the coming years in USL, the big-time owners are going to want to separate themselves from the reserve product and from the smaller teams. So eventually what I see is a merger happening with MLS at Division One, a merger of USL and NASL teams, the most competitive and best ones there are in a 20-team league in Division Two. Division three would be USL two, and the the bottom league will not be NPSL. I think it'll be PDL because what do you have in common? You have MLS, USL, and PDL are all franchise models, and this seems to be the way that the leagues are going. And to a point that that Neil had mentioned earlier, uh, there is also this um, this move towards even though Jake Edwards at the moment doesn't want to embrace the idea, there is a, mo- a movement towards that minor league baseball style system. So I don't see the NASL surviving long-term. I do. They don't have any position of power. They have no clout. They still don't have any seat on the board of directors for U.S. soccer. So why should anybody keep them around? What makes them enticing is the money at ownership. And if they're willing, if that money in ownership is willing to buy into a franchise model, you will have an MLS, USL1, USL2, and PDL completely aligned, happy with their slice of life, 
happy with their place in the pyramid, creating the healthiest pyramid this country has ever seen. I think that NASL and NPSL are still the bastard redhead child, uh, stepchild of U.S. soccer. And eventually they're going to get squeezed out. And that is the, I think that's the long-term view and picture. Uh, again, just conjecture here, that uh, MLS and U.S. soccer sees the country going in. That's very interesting. So the power wins, basically, in that scenario, yeah. I, I, the power always wins. <laughs> interesting analysis, <laughs> and I think quite astute as well. Jonathan, your thoughts on that one, do you think, uh, or on this whole issue? Where, where are we in five years' time? That's, that's, uh, that's, it's really hard to know because five years in American soccer is an eternity for MLS, for all the lower leagues, for the national team, all of it. It's, I, I certainly can see a, a settling of teams levels for a time. And I think that time could come by the end of this year because the NASL has a burden of proof on it. I mean, the USL does too, but the NAS, and I think, Neil, I think with Puerto Rico in particular, they've got to show they can do this. Because if you're going to have a league that stretches from Puerto Rico to Edmonton with eight teams, <laughs> they've, got to, they've got to do something. Sorry. No, I, It does sound ridiculous exactly. when you put it like that, though, doesn't it? It does sound ridiculous. But it's, but it's true. You know, our friend Steve Sandor, who works up in Edmonton and, and broadcasts the Edmonton FC games, it's what? You, you can't go from Edmonton to San Juan in fewer than three flights. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they've got to settle that. I think that some kind of co-op, better cooperation between the NASL and the USL would make a lot of sense. I can't tell you whether it was going to, whether it's going to happen because there's a lot of water under that bridge and obviously traffic being completely out of the picture, uh, helps clean that up. But I'm going to throw one wild card into this because I don't know everything that's going to happen, but I'm just going to throw this one thing out there. 20, it, when you mentioned five years specifically, Simon, yep. I did the math in my head, and that's 2022. Yep. And that is the last year of Major League Soccer's current contract with Fox, ESPN, and Univision. Correct. And so I wonder if, the, if and it's a big if, but if the lower divisions are in a strong enough place by then where they can sustain getting in on whatever comes next, and where they are desirable for the television networks to do something with a God, heaven knows what it's all going to look like at that at that point between television, online streaming, and what devices we're watching it on. But if there's a way for the lower leagues to be involved, then I think you start to open further doors towards doing more things than simply sustaining the lower divisions. That's the wild card I'm throwing out there. Uh, let, let me jump in there just for a second, Jonathan, and we referenced it earlier, and it's probably for another show, but USL Productions is a big deal that many people haven't talked about. I know, Simon, you've had uh, some discussions about that as well. That may play into that wild card in 2022. I think that, that they might. I think that Major League Soccer's global production stuff will. I mean, look, I cover a a relatively small Division One college basketball league, Simon, that's really a whole other show for international audience. But the point is that they 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 do um, a digital network for all of their sports across the board, much like what USL Productions does, and much like what many other college conferences do in the United States that are not the huge ones like the Big Ten and the SEC. The minor conferences do a lot of their own streaming. 
And the production quality for what goes into this online streaming in this in this league that I cover that is fairly small in the northeast of the United States is so good that they can take the product and put it on linear television channels in the local markets where the teams are playing and nobody bats an eye. Right. Yeah, that's got to be the goal for that kind of stuff, hasn't it? I've got to wrap it up because we've gone well over an hour here. It's been very, very interesting as it was last time. Um, I think it's a, it's a topic we're going to be returning to in the future. We will do an MPSL fourth division PDL type discussion because um, Kartik's excited by it, and so we'll get Kartik on to do that again as well. And I think, as a as a free speech advocate as well, I think uh, and a right to reply advocate, I think I need to do a tin foil special as well. Done after this episode, we've uh, made some disparaging yeah. disparaging comments about the so called tin foil people, but Ted. If you're listening, we will we will get around to you. <laughs> so, thanks very much, everyone. Dave Martinez, Neil Morris, Carty Christia, Jonathan Tannenwald. It's been fantastic having you here on the Soccer File, and we'll do this again. Cheers, and enjoy the new season. Well, thanks very much for listening to The Soccer File. We'll be back soon with another episode for you. To make sure you don't miss out on that, don't forget to subscribe at iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play Music or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks very much indeed to Yanchi for the music and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Enjoy your football. <laughs>